For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. I'm Tim Elmore. And I'm Marshall Morden. It's true. Marshall Adam Morden. Adam. You know, I don't think I knew that. I know your middle name. It's Baxter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of those old-fashioned family names as a middle name thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I it dig is. it. Yeah, I dig yeah. it. A nod to the heritage. All right. <laughs> Speaking of a nod to origins. Mm. Ooh, dude, segue. I love it. Yeah. I love it. So last week we talked about, um, we talked about how meticulously fabricated our universe is. Mm -hmm. Just in order for there to be anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. But there's more than anything. There's order Mm -hmm. in the thing, which we also discussed Science says either you have it all or you have none of it Mm. when it comes to the inanimate materialistic world that we have, our universe that we have. Mm -hmm. But even beyond that, there's life. Yeah. Where does that come from? I know. So that's the question we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. And in, in staying true with... The fact that we are now at this portion of the podcast, not trying to just say, this is the Christian worldview. We've done that Uh, at the beginning of the year. What we're saying is this is where the world would come in and say, our statement is this. Does the church have an answer for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The statement is essentially this. There is no need for a God in order for there to be life. Right. And so that's the working principle. And from that, we have a litany of arguments to say there are various reasons we could be at the place we're at. Right. And so we're going to go through some of those and then uh, answer them from a Christian worldview. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. Right. So, so again, so like the, the question at hand being like, how did life begin? Right. Like, so how did we get to, so again, if we were to kind of stick with a, a secular worldview, right? Mm-hmm. Which you've already kind of, we, we've addressed as far as the origins of the universe, we've addressed in regards to the f- functioning of the universe, but now in regards to life, how do we get to inanimate, unliving matter, just like stuff, to a planet that is full of life? and. Mm-hmm. And later on, we'll have the conversation about like the variety of that life and the kinds of things that exist. What we're really going to focus, I think, is just on the origins. Like how did stuff that wasn't alive become alive? Right. Right? Um, we obviously have our own explanation for it. But but I think first, as you mentioned, we have to kind of wrap our minds around what the secular world has to say about mm-hmm. that process, right? So how did these first organisms come to life? What's interesting is that there have been kind of secular theories regarding the origins of life for a long time. Like I'm talking back to the ancient Greeks. Sure. Um, yeah. And they've kind of fallen in and out of fashion over, over the years, right? Um, but these secular theories involve something called spontaneous origins. So things spawned from other things, which we obviously have a, a bit of an issue with philosophically what we've addressed before and the idea back like back in the in ancient times when people were seeking to find a reason why there's life apart from god people believe things like you know pond scum just have it like that pond scum like that's mm-hmm. just going to naturally create tadpoles yeah right yeah or eels in more oceanic right places, right yeah. or like um rotting flesh is just going to result in worms being there right mm-hmm. because that's what they observed right Right? right, so like they didn't have microscopes. They can, so they didn't understand that these things already existed before the an, the worms were in the animal before the animal died. Yeah, right. Uh, but they didn't realize that. So there was this this idea that maybe stuff. You know, if you if you have a certain like there was even a there was like a there was a scientist in like the 1600s who was convinced that like if he had like a really what was it like it was like a it was a shirt and whey like, powder. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the mice would just emerge from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was convinced of that. He's not, not was not correct. Um, but that that was kind of the mindset, right? For at least amongst those who were not willing to acknowledge that God was the one who who started life, right? Yeah, yeah. That inanimate formulas can come together and form animated life. Yeah. Just yep. smash some non-living stuff together enough and it creates life. Well, mm-hmm. there's a guy by the name of Louis Pasteur. You might have heard of him. He's the reason why uh, milk lasts more than a day. Uh, but through experimentation, he actually proved that this was impossible. So he, he had kind of inanimate matter in like a, a vacuum sealed container. Right. And his sanitized thought, and sealed. Sanitized and sealed. So his thought is, okay, if that's possible, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it didn't happen. So so then all of a sudden that idea began to fall out of fashion, right? And, and the thing, and we're, we'll get into this more, but the reality is that to this day, no no lab has ever been able to produce life from an absence of life. Right. It's, just, it's never happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. There are some things that we're going to talk about later that are like touted as like, oh, here you go. Here's this experiment. But it's not it's it's often not as cool and interesting and significant as what it's presented at right and it's not like we're just coming at it as people with a different worldview and so we stick our fingers in our ears and go la 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 it's, <laughs> right it's the scientists themselves even saying this isn't the thing but it might move us closer to better understanding right. thing it's a step in the process right, right 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 but the reality is that for a lot of people on the street they just assume, they just take it for granted that this explanation that like non-living things became living things. And it makes perfect sense because science has proven it. Well, mm-hmm. mm, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, one of one of the things that I found interesting, um, you mentioned this when we were just sort of briefly uh, chatting about what the episode was going to be about. You said that um, one, of, one of the things that people, or at least one person you were watching, had spoken to, and I had heard a number of people say it as well, if anyone says, from a scientific perspective, a naturalistic perspective, we know what happened, they, they don't. They don't. Like, there's no consensus to say this, there's not even a consensus to say this is the prevailing theory, right? Not even enough information for that. Um, yet, interestingly enough, Right after you left my office, I had another couple of emails I needed to send out. I threw on a video just to see uh, how they were going to answer this question. And the very first thing that came out of their mouth was, uh, there are a lot of questions in our universe that we can't answer, especially when it comes to life. But what we do know is this. Mm. And then they laid out their theory. And right. I thought, mm, what, we, what we do know is this is an interesting way to state that. Yeah, one of, one of the kind of quotes that that I picked up on as I was kind of doing some research on the, kind of the secular explanation for it and kind of these like online course videos that you can watch that are free, um, was the, the narrator says, you know, we know that only life produces life. But we know that four billion years ago, there was no life on Earth. So... And then they say this thing, right? So right. it's like, we, we know this is true. We also hold to this being true. Those things don't compute. But forget that. We're going to move on and we're going to tell you how it happened anyways, right? Right. In a, in a logical outflow. Right. As if it could be reproduced or not. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting too, in another, in another um, thing I was in, in my research, I came across this, this statement that, um, that this the origin of life, the spontaneous origin of life, was the final act of spontaneous generation. So not the first, but the final, because mm-hmm. it's such a even amongst those who are trying to push it, they they acknowledge that like this thing, this idea is so far fetched. Like it's it never happened before, and it's never going to happen again. And so they kind of point to this like uniqueness of this hypothetical event where debt the non-living stuff became living stuff because well there's life now so there must be a reason for it and we've just we, we're we're just gonna start the conversation by entirely ignoring the possibility of a creative force and ndt neil degrad tyson oh yeah 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 i uh, promotes this concept he does. right uh he's he's very famous as a he's, he's sort of like our generation the current generation's 
uh, superstar for anti-Christian apologetics for science. Sure, right? yeah. He's the new Dawkins or Hitchens. Right, yeah. right, right. And and he lays out this ex- the extraordinarily rare and improbable issue of inanimate matter matter coming to life. Mm-hmm. But he also says whatever happened here cannot be considered unique because hmm. surely it would have happened in other places as well. Right. Right? And so so his point is to say like it's incalculably rare to the point that we've never seen it happen but it happened once. But surely these building blocks would have come together in another place at another time mm. and done the exact same thing because I also can't lead myself to believe that Earth is unique in this massive universe, mm. right? So you just sort of see the preconceived notion piling up on top of itself to create increasingly improbable situations. Mm as a thing that he would that he would hold to. Mm-hmm. And so then he went on to say, uh, so that's why we search for life, because surely this would have had to have happened again. But then he lays out the this concept of the Goldilocks zone. Mm-hmm. We only search planets that are exactly as far away from their star as ours is, based on the calculation of how big the star sure, is sure, and yeah. how much... Uh, radiation it generates mm-hmm. because it has to be in in ratio has to be exactly like ours to work <laughs> and so so the whole the whole notion that the universe is so vast that every planet has the potential for life even even NDT would say that's not true mm-hmm. it would have to be by ratio exactly like ours yeah yeah and that's what we're looking for is another planet exactly like ours where this sort of thing could take place, mm-hmm. which just bumps the improbability to just mind-boggling degrees. Yeah, right? totally. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, there's there's just so many things that have to go right, mm-hmm. and things need to happen that literally can't happen, <laughs> as yeah. we're going to get into. So the argument is... <laughs> What happened? Okay, so well, okay, so well, let's before we get to that, I think we have to kind of define for people like what what we mean by our organic life because we're not talking about just like you know uh, animals and mm-hmm. and and you know redwood trees and that sort of thing. Like if if you kind of want to go for the most simple form of life, right, the least complex form of life, there are bacteria right like there's kind of single-celled organisms and bacteria and these types of things it but for something to be living kind of as a definition it really requires two systems to be happening it needs um, a way of replicating itself mm-hmm. right which which means it needs dna need it needs something to copy in order to like replicate itself but it also needs a metabolism in order for it to fuel that replication, right? It can't, you know, so, so you got, you, you need, you need something that it can be copied to continue that, that strain of life. And also you need a means of like using energy to, to do that thing. Right. This is, this is like the most basic, um, definition of what something living might be. Right. But like, DNA itself is a molecule, or it can be described, I guess, as a molecule. Some people might describe it differently, but made up of thousands of smaller molecules all fitting together. And it's made up of like, you know, carbon and oxygen, hydrogen, and all that kind of stuff. And on our planet, we have 94 different elements that we can find on the earth naturally, but carbon is the basis of all living organisms on earth. Mm-hmm. So like carbon is like the, the building block. Like if you build a building, you're going to use all sorts of different materials, but like carbon is the brick. Yeah. So to speak, whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, I realize there's a lot of buildings now that don't use brick, but let's, let's go back 50 years in time or something. Sure. It's, it's the brick. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the main thing that builds the structure around which everything else fits. Right. But there's, amino acids, which are building blocks of protein. So there's, there's a lot of different parts and pieces that have to come together even for those most simple um, 
bacteria, single-celled organism, like an amoeba or whatever. Like mm-hmm. there's there's a, there's a lot of different parts that have to be there, not just one. So that's just something to keep kind of in the back of our and, mind. And I would I would throw this out to a scientist who was measuring the probability of these things coming together, mm. even for those things to exist at the molecular level. Things have to exist at the atomic level and the subatomic level, right? So when, when we're talking about things like proteins, we can't just assume that protein is just in and of itself a thing. It is still a thing made of things. Yeah, it's a complicated thing. Right? It, it's a thing made of uh, many, many, many things that construct that come together in such a way as to make the protein or the amino acid itself a produced structure right right so we can't even look at it and be like oh yeah sometimes you just walk around and you're like oh look at there's a, a puddle full of proteins yeah, yeah right right that's not how it works no <laughs> yeah and so like the issue for the secular scientist when it comes to kind of the earliest possibilities for the origins of life is you get a bit of a chicken and egg type situation mm-hmm. um, in regards to this kind of DNA and proteins thing because to get functioning proteins, so to have proteins doing what proteins are supposed to do, you need DNA. Right. Because uh, DNA is like the, the, the map. It's the, the, the control. It's going to tell, mm-hmm. tell, tell them what to do. But DNA can't function unless it has proteins to use. Right. <laughs> so it's like you have both, both things kind of being reliant upon each other. And again, this is in the absolute most basic. Like as, as you get more and more complex, um, like there's is a multiple relationships of like codependency that are required, right. right? Where you need other things to be working the right way. Right. So so the interesting thing that I find inside of that codependency where where you have the actually before I get into that, some people will argue and, and it'll end up being an, an issue later, but just to define it now. So people will argue that DNA is not necessary, that the first forms of life were a more rudimentary form. Sure. RNA, yep. ribonucleic acid. Yep. Uh, strands of RNA are only ever so slightly less sophisticated than DNA. Right. It's not like one is a supercomputer and the other one is like a pencil and a piece of paper. Right. Right. It, there is a difference ever so slight. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is most every organism, as far as I know every, but I'll leave the window open just in case, uh, organism that they would even say, quote unquote, lives through RNA because it's questionable whether or not bacteria and viruses are living. Right. Yeah. Because they can't exist without a host. Yeah. And that host has to be a living thing. Right. Yeah. Right. So the virus requires life in order for it to live. Right. Like specifically. Like so it, so is was COVID nineteen a living thing? Debatable. Right. And so and so the reason that that's important is to say when people are like, Well, you jump straight to DNA but you forgot about RNA. Not necessarily, but RNA is not an entirely different thing. It is also extraordinarily complex. Mm-hmm. Um and whether or not it's even life is questionable. And could it have been the building blocks? A lot of scientists, and I, from my small education on this, would would agree, if it needs a living host, it cannot be a first form of life, right? Because you get back into that sort of codependency that brings us back into DNA where Mm -hmm. DNAs are proteins that need proteins, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, so... Again, like one, this is just another quote from one of these explanations of this whole system. Uh, I've got a, yeah, th- I think this, there's only a couple more that I've got left, but they, I just, I just typed these down as soon as I heard them. Just this one time, life arose spontaneously and matter begat life. And I love the, it was be, I love the use of begat mm-hmm. because it's very like KJV. Right, it's just very like it, it. It adds a weightiness to it, even though it's the the entire premise is kind of nonsense, nonsensical. Uh, but it, it's it's so funny because like even reading through the comments of some of these videos, that like 
even even the people narrating are like, yeah, like we don't really know. And mm-hmm. it's just like this thing happened. And we know it happened because there's stuff here. And there definitely isn't a God. So there's stuff here. So this must be how it happened. It's from a naturalistic worldview, right, right? Right. And people commenting on it were just like, oh, that's so encouraging. It's so enlightening, right? Because people are just longing for like meaning and purpose and like an origin story for why there's stuff. But if they are wired in such a way, not just wired in such a way, but if they're just determined to exclude the possibility of a creator, like they'll just, they'll take whatever. It doesn't matter how shaky it is. They're like, give me that. I'll take right. that. That gives me something anyways that I can hold on to as long as I don't have to be held accountable to, to a creator. Yeah. It, I, I had the same sort of feeling, right? Like the difficulty in hearing people say, this is impossible it is proven to be impossible we know it to be impossible but it's what happened right because i can't think of another option that i would put forth mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. not to say they can't think of another option there are other options mm-hmm. but i can't think of another option that i would put forth right and and then to cling to that and then to just call people to stand in awe and, and what are we in awe of probability right or maybe improbability extreme is what we're in extreme we're improbability in yeah yeah but just to say mm-hmm. and, and and then fascinatingly to call us people of faith when they're like this thing that we would tell you is impossible did happen mm-hmm. it is impossible within the naturalistic realm that would make it outside of the naturalistic realm but there is a word for that, which is supernatural. Or miracle. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk about some of the scenarios they It would take forward. a miracle for non-living matter to become living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, so there's some different like hypotheses of like where and how exactly this, this process might've happened. And, and keep in mind that like we don't have the time to go into the long chain of events that would hypothetically be required in order to get just a single celled organism. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's that, it's that far fetched. Right. Um, so the idea is like, there's a, there's a number of different kind of like prevailing theories, right? The one thing we have to, we have to, the one thing that kind of kept popping up is the primordial soup. Yes. You gotta love that, that primordial soup. Campbell's should should mm-hmm. should put that in a. In I don't a think case. anyone wants to eat that. You want to eat that primordial soup? Um, so essentially, the idea that like you just had this this liquid substance that was not really not not all that similar similar but not all that similar to our current oceans, and there's different levels of of, of different um, elements within it that created this environment where you know life could potentially occur because everything was just so perfectly mm-hmm. balanced in such a way in this chaotic soup. Somehow the chaotic soup was perfect. Uh, yeah. It's always a fun thing to, to right. wrestle with. Right. And so, so there, science is very given to the fact that there's no life without water mm-hmm. to the point that the first thing that scientists want to look for on other planets is evidence of water. Mm-hmm which would bring them then to evidences of life. And and that's why the zone is so small, because H2O only exists within a certain realm if it's mm-hmm. heated up ever so slightly mm-hmm. to the degree that you can do this in your kitchen. Heated <laughs> up ever so slightly, it ceases to be water and becomes right. vapor. Mm-hmm. And if it's cooled ever so slightly, in fact, you don't even need a kitchen. You can just... Leave a pot of water out on your back deck, right? And when the summer comes, right. it will evaporate. Right. And when the winter comes, it will freeze. That's right. Because it's that finicky that even on Earth, mm-hmm. in the, what they would call the perfect environment, mm-hmm. even within the perfect environment, it's volatile. Mm-hmm. And that instability is is changed so much when you look at places like Mars, right? Was it heated just a few degrees and evaporated or was it cooled and it's locked and frozen in ice that would be under the surface because we can't 
find any on the surface. So the search for water is everything. That's why mm-hmm. it's always a soup. The thing that I found that I thought was interesting is there seems to be a lot of differentiation in the narratives on the size of the body of water right, yeah. and how important that is. Right, yeah. Some would call it deep ocean, mm-hmm. right? That it has to be deep in the ocean because there are so many things that have to come together. There has to be space for all these things to come together. I heard that it had to be deep in the ocean. One of the reasons was deep in the ocean because um, hypothetically at that point with less of an atmosphere, the radiation from the sun would be too much for anything to mm-hmm. be born or whatever, yeah. Right. But on the other hand, it has to be not, the the soup has to be in a puddle. Mm. Right? Right, I've heard that. And, too, and yeah. even the smallest of puddles. Sure. Because what we're talking about are molecular elements. And the space between available for molecular elements to move away from each other in an ocean is, it might as well be the universe. Right. Um, even in a puddle, in the smallest of puddles, this might as well be a galaxy right. from which they have to roam. And and even in the, the video that puts forth the notion, says in the smallest of puddles you would ever imagine on Earth, the improbability of all of these elements being present <laughs> and simultaneously coming in contact with each other right. is unthinkable. Right. <laughs> Yet it did. Right, right, right. Yeah, I the other the other um, major option beyond the the puddle one is the hydrothermal vents deep mm-hmm. in the ocean. So the idea being like, well, it couldn't have been too close to the surface because the radiation, so it was deep in the ocean. But that would have been too cold. So then there's these, you know, and there are these hydrothermal vents in the ocean from kind of like the magma under the surface crust, and they they kind of sprout out like, you know. Um, well, just like there's heat coming through and then also like minerals and stuff. So they're like, that would have been it. But there's, they said like, well, there's two main kinds is like the, the, what they call like the black vents and the white vents and the, the black vents wouldn't have worked because it would have been too hot. The white vents wouldn't have worked because they wouldn't have had enough of the, the, the minerals that are required for this. So it would have been a white vent with black vents in proximity. And there would have been, you know, and again, it's all, it's all very hypothetical. Like it's mm-hmm. all very like, I mean, we can't point to a place where that actually happens like where that type right. of environment actually exists under the ocean but they're like hypothetically if it right. looked like this right like and this- so so the purpose of the vents is just to say one of the elements necessary is believed to be temperature yeah and yeah. in the deep ocean scenario you just don't have the temperature mm-hmm. that you would expect mm-hmm. right but like you said the the puddle issue you could do like the whole well the radiant energy of the sun but also when you want to throw the earth's date back billions of years mm-hmm. you run into the issue of an unformed atmosphere yeah and hyper radiation yeah where we would no longer be in that zone mm-hmm. and water would have most likely just evaporated yeah or anything living like theoretically living would just would die. be sterilized yeah right yeah right but all of this we've not yet even gotten to the concept of life coming to be no. all of this is just creating the environment yep right this is if we're if we're baking a cake Mm-hmm. What we what we've done so far is gathered the ingredients that we need, mm-hmm. thrown them into the same bowl, right? Maybe adding some temperature. That's yeah. Now, yeah. So, like, there's, there's all this speculation because the idea to keep in mind all of these factors that have to come together in order for life to become a thing, like. Not only is this so far-fetched, but then this one living thing has to th- then become the ancestor of all living things, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's it's known in science as LUCA, which is just an acronym for the last universal common ancestor. They have no idea what it is. There's no evidence, fossil evidence, obviously, of it. Mm-hmm. There's, um, It's just simply assumed because there are certain things within all DNA that are, are common to some degree. So they're like, well, then it must be this common ancestor mm-hmm. that occurred. But again, as we've mentioned, like whether it's hydrothermal vents underneath the ocean or a puddle that just happens to have all the right pieces all there at the right time, like the idea that like these things then came together is is a pretty big leap. The term, the, 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 the scientific term is something called... Um, uh, 
abiogenesis. So essentially, it's it's the idea that like life came from non-life or life came after non-life. So there's two different ways of kind of looking at it, right? So there's one sense where we could say, even as as Christians with a, a biblical view, you could say, well, life, at least on earth, life came after non-life, as we know, at least biological life, right? Mm-hmm. That was true. There was a non-living, you know, there, there was not life and then there was life. Um, but typically what it's associated with is that like non-living matter, these, so all these pieces... That somehow, you know, you stir up, you know, carbon and oxygen and hydrogen and all these other things in, in this puddle or at the bottom of the ocean. And suddenly you've got amino acids, which form into proteins. You've got DNA somehow mm-hmm. or RNA even still, mm-hmm. right, that are somehow going to fit together and combine together and then create something that can replicate itself and can use energy to continue doing that process like that's what we're talking. It it is so far fetched and ridiculous. It's it's wild. It's it's wild that there's so much content on the internet that seeks to describe it, because all you got to do is just dig a little, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is there. There's not a lot of here. <laughs> in fact, in fact, I would say even within within their own presentations, a lot of times they will undermine their own the presentation. Yeah. To say this is this is an impossibility, but right. Uh, the one thing, the one thing that they don't throw time at, because we've we've complained in the past that it's always like, well, given enough time and chance, mm-hmm. given enough time mm-hmm. and chance. The one thing that they that they seem, and and I, and I agree rightly that you can't throw time at is the moment in which non living matter becomes living matter, mm. right? We're gonna to use the phrase like the first heartbeat, right? Yeah. At what point? Did all of this stuff become a fused living thing? So even if we were to presume that this soup uh, did come to be, despite despite all odds and all improbabilities, it did come to be. Let's mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. Um, why would it animate? Right, right, and and in sort of like a, a Frankenstein way, right. There's just this notion that there has to be the harnessing of enough energy in order for these things to come together, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and depending on the puddle or the deep sea, whichever one you want to go with, mm-hmm. uh, Brian Cox again, like his his work in cosmology, I've I've found, uh, although his conclusions are very different, what I would than what I would go with, mm-hmm. I do kind of like to watch the guy. Um, just because he's a really likable guy. Uh, but when he was describing it, and he said, he said this, he said, at some point, these things all came together and began using the sun's energy for photosynthesis. Which I thought was, you know those, you know those uh, sketches, those books for sketching? Mm-hmm. And it's like, here's how you draw the Mona Lisa. And it's like, first you draw a circle, and then you draw a line to cut that circle oh, in yeah, half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you draw the Mona Lisa, right? <laughs> and there's just, there's not enough space in the sketchbook. Like at some point, it's very rudimentary. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I can do this. Yeah. And then at some point in that those instructions, there's this leap. Oh, yeah, yeah. That you're like, I... The reason I bought this book or, or am using this book is because I can't get from here to there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And you've just jumped past so many steps. Mm. And I, I felt like it was that, like one of, those, one of those bad sketchbooks, right? Because we have everything, everything sort of swarms together, and then all of a sudden that thing starts using, because using is a verb, that is being assumed on this fused things of, and so it's an inactive, inanimate thing Mm -hmm. that acts. And that it acts presumes that it's already capable of animation, but it's not. Because it's the radiant energy of the sun that actually makes it capable, and so, I, I'm sure he would say like you're you're over listening to, but 
there's reason for that. Sure. Like, I want to know, it, did the radiant energy of the sun get used? Therefore, we presume that this thing was already capable of, a, of expressing action. Mm-hmm. Or was it acted upon by these things and changed, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And photosynthesis is not this simple sort of like the sun shines on it and naturally happens. It is in and of itself an extraordinary, an extraordinary process, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, so I, I just don't, I just don't like the way that you can just throw that out to mm-hmm. be like, the stuff was there, the sun shone on it, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden we have life, right? Yeah. It's just such an oversimplification. Yeah. And, and in the puddle, it's a lightning strike. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a, a famous chemist, Doctor Tour. I think he's American, but I, I could be wrong on that. But he essentially said, "Yeah, we have no idea how life originated, and anyone claiming they do is blowing hot air." He is not a Christian. He's not even an intelligent design. He's just saying we don't know, and people need to stop pretending like they do because he's like, I'm a world-renowned chemist, and I'm telling you we don't know. Mm-hmm. So if anyone's telling you they do know, they're they're full of it. Like it's just it's not it's not even a thing. Yeah. Now there is there is something that um that the proponents of this view though will point to. There's there was an initial experiment back in the 50s that's kind of prompted an, a, a series of more experiments, and it was by two guys, um, two scientists, uh, Miller and Yuri. And what they did is they had a chamber full of various gases and elements, and they sparked it with um, with electricity um, to see to try and cause a shuffle of of the you know the atoms and the various molecules that they they had put there. And and what they did it enough times, and they kind of fine tuned things well enough that they actually created an amino acid. Okay. So, so, okay. So again, amino acids are, are, are pretty basic elements compared to a lot of other things. Amino acids are just building blocks of other things that are building blocks of other mm-hmm. things. So keep, keep that in mind. Um, right. Like it is, it's like a single Lego piece. If you were to build, you know, a, a, a city out of Lego, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, it's a building block, but mm-hmm. But the reality is that so and this, so this this whole this this whole thing was like pitched like hey we've proven that we can create living life out of non life but amino acids aren't alive amino acids are not living matter amino mm-hmm. acids are just a slightly more complex molecule so what they did is they just shocked a bunch of stuff until things happened to shuffle enough and they did it enough times that suddenly they're like oh well here we have this thing yeah here's here's what I would equate that to. Mm-hmm. If you if you were to look at a modern building, yeah, okay, yep. and and you were to to say, okay, when I walk into a modern building, what do I expect? Mm-hmm. I expect doors into rooms. Yeah, no room without a door, mm-hmm. right? Because that doesn't make sense. That's not how buildings work. Mm-hmm. Um, I expect there to be electricity. I should be able to walk in and turn the lights on. <laughs> right. So there's some living matter. Uh, or a living element to the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I expect electricity. I expl- expect running water. These kinds of things are what we expect in a building. Mm-hmm. To create a building block mm-hmm. would be to say, if you go to the right place, you will find clay that has come together and hardened mm-hmm. in such a way as to create a rock. And we can take this and reproduce it in what we call bricks. Yeah. So therefore, that building could come together <laughs> naturally. Of its own, yeah. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about creating bricks. Yeah. yeah. Right? And even that, even even the brick that they created doesn't happen naturally. It's not like we go out and we find in places where uh, lightning struck these spontaneously generated amino acids as a natural phenomenon the way you would the brick so mm-hmm. or the rock. So my analogy fails in that area that it gives more license mm-hmm. to the thing than it should. But to say we created an amino acid means you could expect, what, the building? No, because there's so much of it in the intricacy of the design and those kinds of things, hallways that leads to rooms and, and all of that sort of thing that mm-hmm. um, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't insist. Yeah. That the, the creation of the building block means mm-hmm. we could also create 
the yeah. building or that the building would come to be. Yeah. So if you looked at, if you remember, if you like, for those of you who took like chemistry in, in high school, the, those little, those drawings of what molecules look like, those kind of mathematical type where you have like the lines and the mm-hmm. letters. So if you have an amino acid, it's a pretty basic thing. You compare that to a single celled organism. It's just like, it, it's incomparable. Like it's just, there's so much more to it. Um, plus these guys, Miller and Yuri, they, they kind of cheated. Um, they use the, the purest industrial grade materials and gases and whatnot. Uh, they use multi-million dollar equipment to create this perfect environment or as perfect as they could for their experiment. Um, nothing like any environment we find on the earth again. So like, just like, it's just fine tuning. Like, you know, how can we fine tune things as much so that when we hit things with enough energy, they're more likely to combine and create an amino acid. Um, the reality is like, with their experiment and with, with like the vast majority, like well over 99% of all of these types of experiments where they're using fine-tuned uh, materials, fine-tuned equipment and all this stuff when they're trying to put something like, like an amino acid together, the overwhelming majority of time, it just results in like waste, just garbage, mm-hmm. just creates nothing. Um, so, and, and, and when they do create something... So like if they do like, you know, they put some gases together and in this environment and they hit it with enough energy and and something becomes an amino acid, typically it's like the tiniest trace amounts that's just surrounded again by garbage and poison. So again, that wouldn't have been a conducive situation for life because that would, that piece wouldn't have been able to connect with anything else because everything else around it would have, would have stopped it from happening. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and, and and they talk about this as though like it's like a natural thing. Like, hey, like we did this like thing, and like we can see that like naturally you could have theoretically these uh, these things, and you know with a lightning strike or whatever, and you're gonna get amino acids. But that's like saying my laptop is natural, mm-hmm. right? Because well, my laptop is made of metal that comes out of the ground. Silicone. There's glass that's from sand or whatever. Like you know what I mean? It's like well. Okay, sure, but this is not going to be a naturally occurring thing that's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like how you mentioned with like with the building, right? So it's just it's not. It's it's and even then they still they still they're only creating the most simple materials that are a fraction of a fraction of what would be necessary for even the most simple single cell organisms. Yeah, and and I think pointing pointing that out about the amino acid is to say um this is this is all of the work and improbability that goes into creating one of the things that needs to come together with a hundred other things. Yeah. Right? Um, in order to create the thing. So what is this? Is this just taking the opportunity to look at the scientific world and say, that's just silly? Mm. In the same way that they would look to us and say, oh, you believe that some higher power just decided one day he was going to strike up a craft project and and that's why we're here right that yeah. that feels to them to be silly sure i i think i think the there are two things that come from this mm. one it's important for christians to understand where the world is coming from mm-hmm. when they make their points yep what the point is and how they came to that point right and the reason is if it's stated with enough confidence then we can tend to look at that and go, I'm I'm not a biologist or a physicist. I'm just going to have to take your word for it on some of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in general, Christians don't spend a lot of time listening to the world talk about how these things came to be yeah. and really thinking them through. Mm-hmm. And I I wouldn't discourage you from looking online and saying, what does the BBC have to say about? the origins of the world, mm-hmm. right? I think sometimes as a, in our piety, what we want to do is just shut it off and say no, right? Mm-hmm. The problem with that is, one, for those who might be in a place of doubt, it leaves us in our doubt, mm. saying there's an explanation out there, and I don't know what it is, but there's an explanation. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we spend a little time with it, we'd be like, yeah. hold on. Yeah. Hold on, there's a there's a huge problem there, right? Yeah. If you if you are able to approach it with a degree of discernment and being able to read between the lines, mm-hmm. because they're gonna throw out statements that they right, and if you have someone with a British accent, it sounds smart. It sounds smart, mm-hmm. and they're gonna say, and this is what happened, and you're like, oh, that's what happened. 
Right. right? And then you, but you have to be able to read between the lines and say like, where are these gaps? Like the mm-hmm. gaps that you mentioned, like these giant leaps or where, you know, and, and these throwaway comments of like, well, we've never actually seen it happen or mm-hmm. like, you know what I mean? And so like people just need to approach it with, you know, not believing everything you read, but like, but, but, but approaching it to understand where, where the world's coming from. Right. And so I, I think it's, I think it's valuable to understand where the world's coming from. And also we've talked a lot here about gaps. One of the number one complaints that the world has with Christians in science is they complain about it as a theory of that they call God of the gaps. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you don't know, you say, but God, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And their complaint is you can't fill every gap with but God, mm-hmm. right? At the same time, you could also fill that gap by saying external force. Yeah, or right? time or chance or right. whatever, right? But an external force is an apples to apples thing. Right, we would, true. We would yeah. call it a personable God. Right. They would call it some force of gravity, radiation, mm-hmm. time, chance, whatever that external force is to say these things would have existed, but it needed to be acted upon. Mm. Lightning, right? right? Something needed to gather these things and then animate it, mm-hmm. right? Their, their concepts are not that different. They're just far more improbable, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And that's where I, I know that I know that a lot of scientists would would listen to these podcasts and they would hear me say things like, I genuinely believe Mm -hmm. that science points toward a creating God, Mm -hmm. right? That he's, that the Christian worldview is the best solution for the scientific gaps and improbabilities. Mm -hmm. And they would say that's ridiculous, maybe even throw out the God of the gaps theory. Mm -hmm. But I would say an intentional outside force is the quickest way to get from A to B mm-hmm. and all of these massive questions created by improbability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would just, again, and this is something that I've said before, won't, won't be the last time I say it, particularly in this year of podcasting, but people's conclusions are going to be significantly based on where they're coming from. So what I mean by that is that like the people who are putting this, this content out, who are excited about these really weak arguments like you'd be like well i'm gonna i'm gonna bring this stuff to them i'm gonna bring this stuff to their attention and i'm gonna show them like hey look this doesn't make sense this doesn't line up right like it actually makes more sense that there's a creator like if they are determined to not believe then they're Mm -hmm. like again and i'm not saying god can god can and has used apologetics to draw people to faith um so like i'm not questioning that for a second right like that is that is a possibility but but the reality is that I would say f- particularly amongst the highly educated, the chemists and biologists who handle this stuff, the reason they have the belief that they have is because they don't want to believe in a creator. Yeah, and so then then the question may come to what then is the value mm. of this podcast and these kinds of mm-hmm. information in an outreach setting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you were saying... I'm here. Okay, sure. The first order of apologetics is to uh, deepen and strengthen my own faith. Yeah. But I'm particularly here because I want to learn better how to address the questions that those people in my sphere of influence have mm-hmm. um, about why I believe in God. Mm-hmm. And and I want to know how to respond to their challenges and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the best that this sort of thing comes at is to say, my explanation is not more unreasonable than yours. Right. Because that's genuinely the starting point. I don't even think you have to go as far as I would go to say, I believe mine to be more reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, even even beginning at the place where you say, I can't be so easily dismissed because you have serious questions that are unanswerable in your own worldview, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and even if you, I, I, we have argued, and I would continue to argue, most people aren't non-believers because they've sat down for years with all of the information, books right. open and genuine hearts saying, right, right, right. let's examine and come to a point. So mm-hmm. 
to say their worldview might even go too far mm. because they've just sort of bought wholesale and it sounds good, whatever. Um, but causing them to think, make them think, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Ask the question. And if you're fortunate enough, God graces you with the opportunity to cause the person to just go, I've never thought about it like that. Or even if they're willing to say, I've never read it. Mm. Um, I just know that this is what I've been told. Mm -hmm. That is an incredible moment for you to say, I think you should look into it, Mm -hmm. right? Go, Go do the research and you come back to me and let's talk about what you learned, mm-hmm. right? Not just, I'm smarter than you, here's my perspective on a creative God and why everyone else is ridiculous, but to be able to say, no, go and do your thing and let them come back with, you know, the sort of like primordial soups and lightning bolts and, and all of these kinds of things and to mm-hmm. just go, yeah, but, and then and then slowly opening up to, do you see the gap here and do you mm-hmm. see the gap here? And, yeah. and that feels to me really far-fetched mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and just allow it to be it's not going to be the dagger that causes someone to be like oh hey you know what primordial soup and radiant sunlight are uh aren't likely you gave me the calculation of the improbability right. now i believe that christ died for my sins right <laughs> right but they're conversations. Sure. These yeah. are these are writing prompts, conversation starters, mm-hmm. whatever it is, the opportunity to say to people, do you ever think about these things? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what does your brain tell you about it? Mm-hmm. What does your heart tell you about it? Mm-hmm. I want to talk about these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just might find that person willing to have those discussions with you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. Anything else? All right. Well... Next, we'll talk about how life became such organized, complex, and diverse, life, and beautiful. And yeah. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada. It's produced by Alex Walker. See you next time. See you.